0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hello there. Welcome to the Loving Liberty broadcast and the podcast. So who knew we were going to wake up to the snowpocalypse today, but apparently that's what's happened. You know, this just makes me take my friend Ralph DeLugas more seriously than ever. I mean, I think uh, he was talking about this on his show. Uh, actually, the last few weeks, he's mentioned this on Stranger Than Fiction about uh, entering into the solar minimum. It's not the global warming you've got to watch out for. It's the little ice age. Well, <laughs> some kind of a little ice age apparently arrived this morning. And, and in a very rare act of uh, magnanimity, the school district said, OK, we'll call a snow day so the kids are home and my wife is home from her job as a public school teacher and anyway uh we're just listening to the wind howl and huddle down here by the fire and you know Thanking our lucky stars. We're not trying to cross Donner Pass. Sorry, that was a little bit dark. Let's let's move on. We're going to talk a little bit about education today. A couple of different aspects, too. Um, I'll, I'll save my talk for the Super Bowl for the next hour, and I do want to get your, your thoughts on this. For the record, I didn't watch the Super Bowl, so I didn't get to see the sexy striptease halftime show that a lot of folks are talking about. But you probably have some opinions on it. We'll open up the phones in the next hour and give you a chance to uh, to hold forth. Today, at least starting out, I want to talk a little bit about uh, why education is the one place where it appears a lot of people are willing to compromise when it comes to asserting their freedom. And, and you particularly see this when it comes to things like school vouchers. Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation has a terrific essay. We're going to kick off with that today and and talk a little bit about uh, School Vouchers versus Educational Liberty. And I'm hoping, by the way, just knock on wood, I've got my fingers crossed, uh, Carrie McDonald, who is an education fellow for the Foundation for Economic Education, and I think a couple of other think tanks as well, I have uh, put out an invitation to her. She's checking her schedule. I hope to have her as a guest a little bit later this week. Here's what Jacob Hornberger says, though. He says it shouldn't surprise anyone that America's public school systems are in perpetual crisis, because that's what socialism does. It produces crises or what the economist Ludwig von Mises called planned chaos. And in his opinion, he says it would be difficult to find a better model for socialism than public schooling. We call it public schooling, but he says the more accurate name would be government schooling. This is a government program from top to bottom. The school teachers and administrators are government employees. The government provides the textbooks and establishes the curriculum. The government enacts compulsory school attendance laws, which are forced on, enforced on parents through threats of incarceration and fine. And to fund its operations, the government forcibly takes money from people through taxation. So his point here is that the system is, a, is run in a top-down, command-and-control manner, much like the Army. In fact, public schooling can easily be described as army light. Students are taught to memorize and regurgitate. Information is pounded into them. Education is measured by tests. Students are indoctrinated with the importance of deferring to authority, obeying orders, complying with regulations, just like in the army. Now, every child, he says, is born with a natural love of learning and an awe of the universe. You can see that on the looks of children from zero to six years of age. Their eyes are wide open, absorbing everything they see. When they learn to talk, their favorite word soon becomes, why? which they use to bedevil their parents. By the time kids graduate from high school, though, most of them tend to hate education, including reading, and they can't wait to get out of school. Their natural love of learning that characterized them when they were young has been smashed out of them in the highly regimented, army-like environment of public schooling. The ability to question, challenge, and critically think is as absent as it is in a soldier in boot camp. So he says it's no surprise that public schooling is also found in countries like Cuba, North Korea, Vietnam, and China. Those are countries whose overall system is based on socialism. Now, he says there's but one solution to the public schooling morass, and that is a separation of school and state, just as our ancestors separated church and state. That would be the end of all government involvement in education, just as separating church and state meant the end of all government involvement in religion. No more compulsory attendance laws. No more school taxes, no more government textbooks, no more government school buildings, no more government involvement in education at all. In other words, a total free market in education. And here's the reason he suggests this. He says that the free market produces the best of everything. It would do that in education. Now, here comes the question that he is certain will be posed. Well, what about the poor? The free market would provide the best educational services to the poor, that would consider a combination of entrepreneurs competing for business at that economic level and wealthier people providing scholarships and fellowships to those in need of help. So how do we achieve educational liberty? Well, Hornberger says, by reaching a critical mass of people who see the virtues and benefits of it and who demand it. How do we arrive at that critical mass? Well, by consistently making the case for educational liberty. If people don't hear the case for educational freedom, how can we expect them to consider it? Now, he says, although conservatives understand the the damage that public schooling can do to children, they threw in the towel on educational liberty a long time ago. Their solution was to adopt a socialist program called School Vouchers as a way to deal with educational socialism. And the voucher program uses the force of government to take money from people to whom it belongs and give it to people to whom it doesn't belong. Now, that's classic socialist seizure and redistribution of wealth. But conservatives will tell you, well, the end justifies the means. In the early days of the voucher program, conservatives argued that the program would gradually lead to the demise of public schooling. But he says that was a pipe dream from day one. In fact, the voucher program does the opposite. It more deeply embeds the state in education by putting private schools on the voucher dole and then subjecting them to the government regulation that comes with the vouchers. Boy, if you remember nothing else from this article, that's the takeaway. That's why vouchers are not a great idea. No money comes through government hands without some very clear strings attached. In fact, he says voucher proponents today no longer argue that vouchers will gradually lead to educational liberty. Their principal argument in favor of vouchers is that vouchers will strengthen the public school system through choice and competition. Well, he says the last thing you'll ever see a voucher proponent doing is making the case for the separation of school and state. By making the case for vouchers, they cause people to think at a lower level, at the level of using socialism to combat socialism rather than at a higher level of educational liberty. So he says, let us libertarians leave socialist educational reform to conservatives. Let us continue standing for freedom and free markets and let us continue making the case for educational liberty through the separation of school and state. Again, this is Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation fff.org. It's it's a it's a pretty solid take. Now, years ago in Utah, there was a school voucher law that was passed and and it was so interesting because the uh the state school board actually defied this law. They refused to enact it. I mean, like seriously, like a 3-year-old throwing a tantrum over I don't want to eat this for dinner. They just simply refused to enact it. And the legislature Fearful to call their bluff because of the power of the teachers union and and the power of, you know, they don't want signs. Utah students deserve more, you know, showing up on their front lawns. So uh, they went ahead and and repealed the bill, which was probably a good thing because the vouchers wouldn't have solved much. There was also an attempt to put in what were called tuition tax credits. The idea being that the money that a parent would be spending on um, their child's education, instead of paying That into their taxes, they're allowed to to keep that money. So if they say, look, I'm going to spend, you know, $4,000 towards my child's private school, they would receive $4,000 worth of credit on their taxes. That's money that stays in their pocket and doesn't go into the public school system. And it was really curious, the, the reaction from some of the uh, uh, public school administrators. And I'm thinking in particular, there was a, a, a superintendent in one of the counties in southern Utah who took great exception to the idea that tuition tax credits, why well, that, that takes money out of our pockets. And I was like, really? And, and, and I actually, I did have this debate and, and it, was, uh, it, was, it, it was very informative to, to say the least. Whose money? Whose money does it take out of your, the public school system's pockets? Well, it's the parents' money, really. And did that money ever leave their pocket under a uh, tuition tax credit system? Well, no, but it's money that would have gone into our pockets. But if it never left the parents' pocket, then really it's still their money. And, and and the sticking point here, what they're upset about is the parents still has the choice to say, here's what I want done with that money. In this case, they were they're using that tax credit, the money that stayed in their pocket to pay for what they consider the best educational experience for their child, be it a private school, maybe a a charter school, maybe even just homeschooling. And, you know, they're using it on on curriculum or supplies to, to teach their kids at home. But do you see the entitlement mindset at work here? That's our money. Or we should have that money. Tell me that that is not one of the, the, the central symptoms that drives that, the socialist thinking, that envy and that, that entitlement. Well, you may think it's yours, but uh, you didn't really build that or you didn't really earn that. And that money belongs to everybody. And you know, blah, blah, blah. The collective needs this. Like I say, I learned a lot. And and frankly, I thought it was a better option than school vouchers for the same reasons Jacob Hornberger makes. But uh, it didn't fly as well. So a few thoughts on educational liberty. We'll come back. We've got more to talk about here on Loving Liberty. Once again, welcome back to the Loving Liberty program. I'm Brian Hyde. Please hold your calls until the next hour. We do have a lot to talk about, and yes, we'll spend a little bit of time uh, uh, dissecting uh, your thoughts on the Super Bowl halftime show, among other things. Uh, it's there, there's a lot to talk about there, so we'll we'll come to that in just a few moments. I started out the show with a column from Jacob Hornberger talking about school vouchers versus. versus educational liberty and in that same vein i would like to to move on to a little bit of uh, truth being replaced in american colleges this is an article by john Staden, published on intellectualtakeout.org and this uh, again gets to to the higher education issue and 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 how students are being trained to to steer clear of truth especially if it's uncomfortable or dare i say painful listen to what john Stadden has to say He says, in the U.K., college typically lasts just three years. Students apply directly to a discipline like psychology or biology, supposedly having received their general education in high school. Now, he says, this process worked in the past when just a tiny fraction of the 18-year-old population went to college. The American higher education experience has always been different. It takes four years to graduate, not three, and the first year is devoted to general education. Gen Ed is where the culture of the nation is transmitted. But he says... Gen Ed is not always what it appears. In their book, Cracks in the Ivory Tower, Jason Brenneman and Philip Magnus reveal what Gen Ed has become. Quote, We have good reason to believe that many, perhaps even most, general education requirements for undergraduates are a form of academic rent-seeking. Their purpose is not really to give students breadth, make them well-rounded, or introduce them to new areas of research. Their real purpose is to line professors' pockets at students' expense, End quote. Whew, wow. In other words, Gen Ed is a cash cow for colleges. But he says, if cash value is all that matters, most of what colleges do can be dispensed with. Philosophy is inadequate as job training, History is poor preparation for a position with Goldman Sachs. And English lit is little help with a career in advertising. Only STEM and perhaps economics might survive as viable college topics. Now, he says the point overlooks the fact that core college courses are value in themselves. If colleges don't believe that, then yes, they have no reason to exist other than a hollow credentialism. The fact that Gen Eds serve an economic function for colleges... And he says the case is only partially convincing it is no reason either to keep or abolish it. Now, he says these economic factors so well dissected by Brennan and Magnus are important. They show the proper purpose of, ac- ac- of uh, academics has often been perverted and its costs elevated for irrelevant reason. But higher education does not exist for economic reasons. It exists, in the famous words of Matthew Arnold, to transmit the best that has been thought, and said. The hi- and said, rather, in other words, the high culture of our civilization. Job-related practical training is not un- unimportant. He says universities and much else of society could not exist without a functioning economy. But, and this point is increasingly ignored on the modern campus, these things are not the purpose or the telos. Of a university. Will that telos be lost? Can it be restored? Now he says it may, but in in the age of diversity, it may be the wrong one. For truth seems to be disappearing from universities' missions. Harvard, with Veritas, truth, and Yale, Lux et Veritas, are still hanging on, but Princeton has begun to slide. Its informal model, motto reads, "In the nation's service and the service of humanity." Duke's recent list of core values is teamwork integrity, diversity, excellence, safety. His point here is that truth is being replaced by social justice. Now, mottos are one thing, action another. And here he says the prospect is grim. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal by a UC Davis mathematician described a kind of inquisitorial manual now used for vetting prospective University of California faculty. As she points out, the Berkeley manual requires a sort of Loyalty Oath. This unpleasant document, an inquisition for admission to the booming religion of diversity, equity, and inclusion, asks questions about a candidate's knowledge about diversity, equity, and inclusion, track record in in advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion, and plans for advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion. Unsatisfactory answers include, Seems uncomfortable, discussing diversity related issues may state that he or she just hasn't had much of a chance to think about these issues yet or participated in no specific activities or only one or two limited activities limited in length of time investment or role or vague or no statements about what they would do at Berkeley if hired may even feel doing so would be the responsibility of someone else oh my goodness you know in some ways these questions are intrusive for they require not just belief but action, action by prospective faculty whose proper interests should be elsewhere in teaching and in their field of expertise. John Staddon says economic analysis of the academy is useful, especially useful are the revelations about covert incentives that sometimes lie behind apparently virtuous acts. But learning and scholarship must have or have rather an, intris- an intrinsic value and omitting that value creates a vacuum, which in the modern university is filled by two things the university as a business and the university as a social activist. Both are destructive to the proper purpose of a university. He says, unless our institutions of higher learning can restore belief in the real value of what they do, real scholarship will decline and a cost conscious, divisive new identitarian religion will arise in its place. Isn't that something? I think he's got a good point here. And, and it's this kind of stuff that, uh, well, it, it makes me grateful that I'm not the one having to go wend my way through the uh, the university system of education right now. I do have a son who's going to school right now. And, you know, my son, is he's, he's not a, a political animal, but he is a pretty sharp thinker. He's got a great sense of humor. He's got his dad's sense of humor. Very dark, very dry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll quit patting myself on the back here. But, no, my, my boy can think. And he'll come to me occasionally and say, yeah, you know, there's you know, there's they're they're doing this uh, this workshop on intersectionality or on diversity or inclusion or whatever. Um, he's not a guy who's out there to to make waves. He's, you know, pretty introverted and and quiet. But he definitely sees it. And fortunately, he also sees it's not everybody. There is a strong activist cadre of students uh, for whom this is their purpose. They're not there so much to educate as they are to, you know, to, to win converts or to, in some cases, bully people into having the right attitudes. But a lot of students are there to learn. And thankfully, he is studying STEM type material. He's studying, you know, uh, pre-pharmacy stuff. So he's, he's neck deep in organic chemistry and biology and, and things that really require serious, deep study and thought. But it's there. It's always lurking in the background. And, you know, a person has to be careful. You, you've got to you know, you got to watch how you express yourself and and make sure that you're not too overt in even your facial expressions. If you walk by, you know, the the uh, intersectionality awareness table and if, if you let your eyes roll, you better believe some activists will come after you and want to know what is your problem. And and they will cause a confrontation just because that's the nature of what they do. Now, forgive me if I'm wrong on this, because you know I'm pretty old. It's been a while since I've been on a college campus. It's it's you know it's very possible that things were different back in the the Stone Age when I was uh, going to school and we were you know pounding out our master's theses on the walls of our caves. But I thought the purpose of going to school, you know, to of higher education, was to help us become well-rounded individuals, to introduce us to ideas, and and maybe even uh, thoughts that uh, that we normally would not encounter. And that doesn't mean they have to all be subversive, but it just means uh, coming face-to-face with with some of the diverse ideas that have shaped the world, again, for good or for bad. And I ask you this in all seriousness. How easy is it to discuss things in that fashion on a college campus today, with speech codes, with safe spaces, with, you know, people everywhere searching for some reason to take offense or to shout down or even violently prevent people from presenting a differing point of view than the one that uh, these students say they want to hear it's more common than we think and i don't think the problem is getting better think before you send your kids off to school better still you know consider some of the alternatives that exist we'll talk about those when we return All right, here we go. We are back for the third segment of Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. First hour of the show today. Please hold your calls until the second hour. Uh, We're talking about education as well as uh, what is happening to education, how truth is being systematically squeezed out on many of our nation's uh, college campuses. And, look, I I can't help but, uh, but think... To some people, it's like, look, we're just trying to do this to make the world a better place. Uh, Those uh, the social justice activists, I don't think all of them are necessarily motivated by, you know, this insane desire, this lust to control other people. Some certainly are. And you can typically tell they're the ones who are, um, for lack of a better phrase, ideologically possessed. The ones who will go out there and start fights with people. Just because uh, they want to bring attention to their cause or because they cannot fathom that someone else might hold peacefully hold a differing point of view. But there are many who promote these things that are just, you know, they're they're really trying to be good human beings and they they honestly believe in their hearts. Hey, we're just trying to to, to make the world a little more fair and a little more kind. But they're not understanding that uh, this kind of fairness, kindness and equality by edict is a counterfeit. If you want people to be fair, if you want people to be kind, it's got to come voluntarily. It's got to be the kind of thing that people do, not because the law dictates you will do this or you will suffer, and not because there's fear of the cancel culture mob coming after them, doxing them, trying to get them you know kicked out of their employment and otherwise blackballed from any place among respectable society. You want people to do it because in their hearts. They say, I want to treat others the way I would want to be treated just because that is the better way to do things. And if it's coming from a voluntary place, that's truly virtuous. That is truly a good thing. That's legit. The forced kind of, uh, you know, equality and and equity towards one another and, and diversity, that is a counterfeit. But very few people have the courage to call it out. It's been fascinating over the last 25 years to watch how... The, uh, the institutions of society are slowly but surely being captured by the cultural Marxists. And I mean the ones that, that, who promote what is politically correct. And there's probably no better uh, example of this than what we see happening right now at uh, West Point, where they are forcing cadets to learn about gender norms and toxic masculinity and forcing them to watch transgenderism and gay lifestyle documentaries. West Point. OK, now, look, I've not been in the military, so I'm not going to say I'm speaking authoritatively of uh, someone who has been in the military. But here's my understanding. A nation's military exists for the purpose of organized force, organized violence. And the purpose, the legitimate purpose, at least under our system of government for which a military exists, is to use that organized violence to defend the God-given rights of its people, as well as defend the the structures that are built to protect and guarantee those rights. Now, if you want to disagree with me, again, we'll talk in the next hour. But uh, that's that's the most basic. It exists. It's it's violence. It is force. It's made to kill people and break things. You know, when all else has failed, that's what the military exists for. Why is it becoming a laboratory? In which the cadets are now forced to learn about gender norms and toxic masculinity. And, and in some cases, you know, there, there are active military units that force their soldiers to put on so-called pregnant suits. This is and wear high heels. This guys, this is so you can understand how a woman feels. I'm not saying that they should all be, you know, misogynistic, you know, beer swilling louts. But it kind of departs from the original <sighs> mission that they're supposed to be fulfilling and and again I would say this is evidence that the cultural marxist warriors have slowly but surely captured another institution. Apparently at West Point these sessions that uh, forced cadets to watch documentaries on transgenderism and gay lifestyle were part of their honorably living day that was hosted by West Point superintendent uh, Lieutenant, Gerald, Lieutenant General Lieutenant General Daryl A Williams. All classes were canceled so the cadets faculty and staff could t- come together for a day of discussions and reflection. Now, this was the third time in the last year that Lieutenant General Daryl A. Williams shut down classes for an honorable living day. This is what the Military Times reported: all classes were canceled at the U.S. Military Academy January 14th, and work was set aside as the cadets, staff, and faculty came together to talk about how to live honorably, build cohesive teams, and combat issues related to sexual assault and harassment at the academy. All right, so far so good. This marked the third honorable living day hosted by the Academy during the tenure of West Point Superintendent Lieutenant General Daryl A. Williams. The first was held last February and brought the West Point community together to discuss the results of the Biennial Service Academy Gender Relations Survey and begin formulating responses to eliminate sexual assault and harassment at the Academy. USMA stood down again last semester to build upon that discussion and call cadets, staff, and faculty to action to combat issues at the Academy and improve the culture in order to combat sexual assault. Tuesday, the entire Academy once again held a stand down day. This time, the goal was to expand the discussion beyond sexual assault and talk about how all aspects of the community can come together and promote an atmosphere of honorable living to include (sighs) diversity, inclusion and acceptance of people from differing backgrounds, races and genders. Now, look, there, there is nothing saying that this is uh, these are ideals that these people couldn't be learning on their own time or, or shouldn't have, you know, somewhere as part of their previous educational makeup. But I ask you again, what is the benefit of using the military or using a military setting to be teaching people and, and discussing these kinds of things, particularly watching transgender and, and gay lifestyle documentaries? The only thing that I can think of is, look, it is a state run institution, the military. And so with that captive audience and because the cultural Marxists have captured the levers of power, at least of that part of the state, by gosh, if we got them here, this is what we're going to force feed them. But I don't try to make the connection that somehow this is going to make them more effective as a fighting force and more cohesive. And and at the risk of sounding misogynistic, um, you know, I understand there are plenty of women who serve in the nation's armed forces. But there was a time when it was understood that for the dirty work, putting out the forest fires, changing the oil on garbage trucks, you know, fighting wars. That was filthy work that a respectful society would not farm out to its mothers and daughters. Not because of this patronizing, don't you worry your little head, but simply because of respect for them. We wouldn't ask that of them. They already have difficult and, and, and roles to fulfill that are impossible for men to do with the same uh, kind of uh, dedication and the, the same nature that they bring to it. And I'm, I'm talking about, you know, bringing the next generation into existence and then imbuing that generation with the culture No, that doesn't mean they all need to be barefoot and pregnant, but it does acknowledge that there are strengths which women and which femininity bring to the table that uh, men and masculinity do not. And likewise, there are strengths that men and masculinity bring to the table that uh, women and femininity don't. Some people see that as an affront. Wow, that's just dinosaur stick in the mud thinking, how dare you say such a thing? I'm just acknowledging that there's there's a reality. There's a difference. We're not just interchangeable robots who just happen to be plumbed a little bit differently. And, you know, everything else is exactly the same. So bringing women into the military setting, integrating them as deeply as they have, um, of course it's caused problems. Why? Because human nature is an enduring part of who we are. You put men and women in close proximity for extended periods of time and relationships are going to occur. It's going to happen. You know, I mean, this it, this is like, you know, suddenly they, they're, they're surprised. Well, you know, we put these uh, female uh, sailors on uh, submarines and, and then uh, turns out why well, there were some guys that were sexually harassing them. Well, gee, I wonder who could have seen that coming that uh, you put men and women in a very enclosed environment for extended periods of time, months on end and being normal human beings. Yeah. What a surprise that uh, there would develop some kind of sexual tension or sexual interest on the part of some of the crew members. Now, I'm not excusing harassment, whether it's, you know, uh, heterosexual or whether it's, you know, same sex type of harassment. I'm just saying that, uh, look, human nature is men and women. Biologically, we are built to respond to one another. And that military setting isn't going to change it. It's just been interesting to see the the subtle transformation as, as uh, you know, the, the U.S. military has become uh, more politically correct over time. And this is not, you know, to cast aspersions on those who serve within the military or even those who come into the military as, you know, transgender or, um, you know, as, as homosexual. Just to point out that the, the purpose of that institution is not to further their pet cause or their particular um, angle of activism. It exists for the purpose of fighting wars or projecting the necessary violence to defend our natural rights and defend the institutions that protect our natural rights. How easy it is to lose sight of that when we're caught up in this politically correct furball. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty. again welcome back to loving liberty hold your calls till the second hour we've got a lot to talk about as we finish out this first hour of the show spending some time on education what is happening to education what is educational liberty and is truth being uh, unceremoniously shown the door on our nation's college campuses and for that matter how is it that west point is now forcing its cadets to learn about gender norms and toxic masculinity as part of its curriculum and also forcing them to watch transgenderism and gay lifestyle documentaries. You know, if if I had suggested 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago that this would be the new normal, people would have thought I was nuts. I would have thought I was nuts for suggesting that such a thing could be the reality. And yet uh, here we are. Where does it go from here? Do we even want to know? I'm not so sure because Uh, There there's (laughs) it seems to me there's a pretty steady downhill slope and 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 we're picking up speed. I know people will say you're just arguing the slippery slope. But I think in this case, uh, if there's if this isn't a slippery slope, it's missing a great opportunity to be one. So I want to shift gears here for a moment and talk a little bit about um, the Super Bowl halftime or I'm sorry, not not even the halftime. This is just the Super Bowl advertising. This is a headline from Russia Today. Drag queens, quote, make history in Super Bowl advert as corporate America toes the line on virtue signaling. This is by Robert Bridge. And he says last week, the U.S. marked another cultural milestone quote, unquote, as cross-dressing males were featured in an advert during Super Bowl 54. Why are companies pandering to radical liberal agendas that risk alienating their consumer base? Well, he says, this week I stumbled headlong into one of those jarring headlines courtesy of the Washington Post that was impossible to walk away from without medical attention. Drag queens will make Super Bowl history in a hummus commercial. He says, it's these sorts of stories that make me resemble, remember rather exactly how long I've been away from home. In the article, we're introduced to Sang Young Shin, better known as Kim Chi in the world of drag, and Maxwell Heller, a.k.a. Ms. Cracker, two regular attractions on RuPaul's Drag Race television show. Now, the two queens are about to be propelled to all-star celebrity status as the Super Bowl spokespersons for some hummus brand that I will not advertise here. Quote, the Queen's landmark commercial with the Super Bowl is another sign of how the show has transformed the art of drag from nightclub delight to a profitable mainstream enterprise. The post gushed. Now, the article conspicuously steered clear of the bigger story, however, and that is whether featuring drag queens during America's most famous sporting event may offend the sensibilities among some of the more conservative fans. Nor did the authors seek to find out if this was really the best message to be sending to children and adolescents who will certainly be in the audience. The Post, like the overwhelming majority of other media, has nothing but glowing words for this latest cultural train wreck. For the uninitiated, the Super Bowl is the most watched television event in the U.S., with up to 100 million people watching the championship football game each year. In 2015, a record 114 million Americans tuned in. Thus, it should come as no surprise that the Super Bowl is also one of the main corporate events of the year. This year, companies will spend around $5 million for a 30-second spot in the hope that consumers will be staring at their televisions and not refrigerators as those commercials are beaming into their living rooms nationwide. However, since these corporate messages will reach tens of millions of people, the content of those advertisements should be of paramount concern to everyone. In the past, it wasn't necessary to consider such things since corporations were hesitant about challenging society's traditions, morals and sensibilities as they do now with great relish. And I love this next sub headline here. Drag goes mainstream without public debate. And the author here points out it needs to be remembered that America did not invent Drag queens, female impersonators, have been around for centuries—if for centuries rather, if not millennia—and certainly long before America was a place on the map. In the United States, as elsewhere, special venues were set aside where any adult—and adult is the important word here—could pay admission to watch one of these vaudeville performances. Drag queen performances hit some tough times during the Progressive Era of the 1890s and 1920s, incidentally, when when the entertainment was connected to homosexuality, then considered a Crime in many states. Now, suddenly, in the toxic spirit of these woke times, which is really the wrong term since so many people are asleep at the wheel, drag queens as well as transgender ideology have slipped quietly into the mainstream without anyone applying the brakes for that critical speed bump known as public debate. In fact, to even venture to ask if such sexually tainted exhibitions are socially acceptable is to risk being bashed as a bigot and hater, which, of course, is a lame way of winning any argument. Yet the issue goes beyond that of Super Bowl, Bowl commercials featuring drag queens, as problematic as that may be. Today, many public schools and libraries are hosting reading sessions performed by female impersonators. In case you may be wondering why this is even necessary, the Brooklyn Public Library has an answer. Quote, drag Queen Story Hour captures the imagination and play of the gender fluidity in childhood and has and, and gives kids positive, glamorous, and unabashedly queer role models. But has anyone bothered to ask how many elementary school kids, some of whom are too young to tie their shoelaces, are sitting around fretting over their gender identity? Yet we as a society are allowing drag queens armed with their twisted reading material to plant that incredibly complex question into the undeveloped or highly impressionable minds of the youth. Now, the author here does point out the problem is not with drag queens per se. The problem stems from the fact that there has been no real national debate with regards to this ongoing hypersexualization now occurring on every corner in society. In fact, it's being pushed from every media as a perfectly normal thing. Few authority figures are asking if children should be exposed to such ideas. Instead, these concepts are being forced on the public from above, not from the grassroots level. This year's Super Bowl marks an advertising anniversary, although the media is not talking much about it. In 1980, a commercial was aired during Super Bowl 10, no, Super Bowl 9 rather, sorry, Super Bowl 14. I can't count it or read new Roman numerals. That won national acclaim as one of the best Super Bowl ads of all time. The spot featured Pittsburgh Steeler Mean Joe Green as he was shown limping toward the locker room in the midst of a game. A young boy follows after Green and after several attempts, succeeds in getting the famous player to take the Coca-Cola he's offering him. After gulping down the carbonated sugar water, Green turns and famously exclaims, hey kid, catch, as he tosses the bewildered boy his football jersey. No virtue signaling, no pandering to political ideology, no agenda other than selling a product exactly as it should be. Unfortunately, those days of straightforward, no-nonsense capitalism are coming to a screeching end. Today, corporations are far more concerned about promoting a controversial agenda, even if that means alienating a large segment of their target audience. In fact, in many cases, the product is barely featured in the ads, as was the case with a recent Gillette commercial that took a decisively cheap shot at toxic masculinity. Judging by the overwhelmingly negative response the commercial attracted... On YouTube, 1.3 million thumbs down. You would think the corporations would take the hint and just stick to what they do best, which is selling a product. But in the span of just a few months, however, we've gone from Gillette lecturing their Hirsute consumer base about the inherent dangers of toxic masculinity to a hummus company employing drag queens to hawk their product during what could be considered the most toxically masculine sports in the world, American football. Robert Bridge says, as far as I can tell, such messages aimed at the American consumer make absolutely no sense. My gratuitous advice to corporate America is to steer clear of the ridiculous virtue signaling and agenda seeking, which has become painfully transparent to most people as nothing more than naked opportunism. Wow. Does it surprise you that uh, that had to come from Russia today? I know there are some people, what? Russia today? Well, you know that's owned by the Russian government. These are people who obviously haven't learned that, hey, truth is still truth, regardless of the source. But uh, there you have it. I thought that was, uh, I thought it was a very interesting take, and I don't see anything here where he's wrong. It's, uh, the, the the more woke the corporate corporate world becomes, the more we're going to be force-fed this, At every point and at every turn. So what do we do about it? All right. Well, for what it's worth, this is uh, this is what my approach is. First of all, I didn't watch the Super Bowl. Not that uh, I was trying to tell everybody else you shouldn't watch it either. I just I I seriously and I literally mean I had better things to do. And so I did them. I worked on some writing. I went and helped a friend who needed some help. Um, Took my dog for a walk. And I don't feel like I missed out on anything as a result. So I missed all the great commercials, and, and trust me, I used to I used to watch the Super Bowl just so I could see the commercials and be conversant in them. Eh, I'm really not that interested anymore. I went to church earlier in the day, you know, even there I didn't feel so much preached at. Had I watched the commercials, I'm sure I would have felt very preached at. Second thing just be a good person. Be kind to other people regardless of of what their their take is or whether you know their focus is on gender fluidity or or equality or intersectionality or whatever the case may be be the person who takes the higher road be the person who's comfortable enough with who you are and what you stand for that you can be kind to other people even if they are being unkind to you trust me it's not easy to do but it is the right thing to do so there you have it hour 2 just around the corner thanks for listening to loving liberty